You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. My name is Ashley. Um, I'm part of the house community group. I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. <clears throat> for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. Thank you so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. If you're a guest under your chair, there is a Connect card. Um, you can take a minute, fill that out, uh, get it back to us. We'd love an opportunity to plug you into the life of the body to see how we can serve you. And on the back side of that uh, Connect card, there's a place for prayer requests. So if you have um, things you need prayer for, you can fill that out, and we would be honored to intercede before the Lord with you. Um, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Bogdan will bring you one. Um, we use the ESV if you're on your phone, and we also have a Bible on our app. And also on our app, there are some sermon notes, so you can download that wherever um, you download apps. It's the App Store if you're an iPhone or uh, for all you other people. I have no idea, but you know, you know where it is. So, uh, Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about our sonship. Um, that means we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. The Apostle Paul reminded the Galatians that they were, in fact, children of God, and that having that as their identity, that is actually the highest privilege that the gospel affords us. It's wonderful and praiseworthy to be justified, to be made right, to be forgiven of our sins. It is something else altogether more beautiful and praiseworthy to have God himself as our father. And God is our inheritance as adopted children of God. Because we've been adopted, we now have an inheritance, and that inheritance is God himself. We've been purchased by his blood, so now we've been set free to love and del delight in Christ and to rest in his finished work to us on the cross. So what we're going to get from the Apostle Paul this week is more of the same as in previous weeks. However, um, he has been giving them a very firm pastoral rebuke up to this point. We're going to see a more tender and compassionate Pastor Paul today. 
Paul's main thrust for this morning's text is, why, if you have been set free from the law of sin and death, why would you go back to it? And the same is true for us in a lot of ways. It's not a direct comparison, meaning that we're not discussing festivals and circumcision in our context, but we do live in a culture that has a lot of Jesus and God language, but often culturally we just miss the point of the gospel. The point is that we've been set free to delight in and serve and follow God. It's possible to do all this churchy stuff and miss Jesus. You can be religious and miss Jesus. So I just ask you this morning to consider your own life. Consider the object of your motivation. Like, are you doing these things in a response to the grace that you have been given? Or are you doing these things to try to earn God's acceptance? To try to earn God's favor? To try to earn God's love? And to try to earn your salvation? Are you functioning like you believe that faith in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are necessary for salvation so long as they are accompanied by good works so that God will accept you? Paul writes Galatians to confront false teachings that in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus and be circumcised. For us, I think the the principle applies We can say all the right things. Maybe we can even do all the right things, but still not have hearts that that are trusting in Jesus as our all-sufficient Savior. If you are a believer in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, I want to remind you that you have been adopted by God through the death of His Son, and you have been sealed by His Holy Spirit. So as we break this text down this morning, I just pray, would invite you to pray as well that the Lord would use our time together to draw you closer to him in faith and in dependency and in sonship this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we need you. Show us our need for you. Lord, I pray that you would impress on the hearts of men and women just how dearly bought we are just how precious our salvation is. Lord, that you would call us back to yourself. Move in us. Move through us. Show us your glory. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Lord Jesus, amen. All right, Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. 
All right, so just for a little context here, again, these uh, churches in Galatia were made up of Gentile converts, meaning non-Jewish converts to the faith. Then there's this group of false teachers that come in from Jerusalem. They're known as the Judaizers, and they come to Galatia and try to convince these new Christians that the Apostle Paul is wrong about Jesus and wrong about salvation. They try to convince these new Christians that in order to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, you have to first become a fully devoted follower of Judaism. And Paul has been confronting this argument head on. Here we get to the end of his theological discussion as to why we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law or by religious devotion. Our passage today is bookended with Paul confronting these Judaizers and their logic head on by using their own arguments against them. So here in verse 8 and following, he first speaks of, of the paganism of the Gentile converts. These people, these Gentiles, prior to coming to faith in Christ, were not Jewish, but they're pagans. Meaning that they're members of this Roman cultish society. They're sacrificing to idols. They're bowing down to idols, bowing down to these images of gods of Roman mythology. And so then they're also participating in the practices associated with pagan idol worship. And Paul tells them, you were enslaved to this. And you've been called out of that. You've been rescued from this. And you've been saved from this for all eternity. You now know God. And more importantly than you knowing God, God knows you. And God knew you long before you knew him. You used to be pagans. You used to formerly be demon worshipers. But now you have been saved by God by the grace that comes from God. You didn't deserve this. You didn't do anything to merit this. But you've been saved. And now you want to pick up this yoke of slavery again and turn back to the emptiness of this religion? You've been set free. But you're going back to your master of sin and death and religion. You're celebrating these holidays and these festivals like the Jews do, but you're doing so not as a celebration of God, but as a way to make yourself right with God. Did you catch that? Paul is speaking to these Gentiles about their former life in paganism and idol worship, and he compares it to their pursuit of Judaism. He says, you were enslaved to worldliness, and now you're going back to the slavery in the form of religion. Pursuing righteousness through idol worship is just the same as pursuing righteousness through trying to keep the Jewish laws. It's exactly the same in Paul's eyes. So a good 2023 comparison for us is this. You go to church. You sing the songs, you give, you serve, and you may even read your Bible. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and there is no relationship with God. You're doing the stuff, the good, godly stuff with wrong, sinful motives. 
Good works are important. Following God, doing what God says is very important, but not as a means to get your salvation. Rather, we are called to faith and good works because of what Christ has done for us. We have been blessed by God through the death of His Son and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So now we follow Christ by love and devotion to God and in service to the church and in service to others. James tells us our faith is demonstrated by our works, so they are important. But if you're doing the churchy stuff, if you're doing the good deeds in order to feel good about yourself or in order to make yourself feel secure in God, you're like these Judaizers. Your religion is worthless before God without a relationship with God. There is no eternal security there. There is no safety there. If this is you, you're probably wondering always if you've done enough. Have I done enough to appease God? Tony Marita says it like this. Paul is uncovering a scheme of the devil in the first century that continues in the 21st century. It is subtle and dangerously deceiving. What if Satan's strategy to condemn your soul involves not tempting you to do all the wrong things, but instead leads you to do all the right things with the wrong spirit? What if Satan actually wants you to come to church, lead a small group, teach, and lead your home in an upright way? What if he's in favor of you doing all of these things just so long as you think you are working your way to God? As you evaluate your life, you may think, I pray. So do the Muslims several times a day. I go to worship. So do the Hindus several times a day. I study the Bible. So do Jehovah's Witnesses and probably can quote it better than most of us. I go on mission trips. So do the Mormons for several years of their lives. What sets Christianity apart is that we've been set free. We've been set free from this pursuit of trying to earn our way to God by doing all the right stuff. We've been made sons and daughters because of the cross and resurrection received by faith in our hearts. And now... We can have a relationship with God. So rather than trying to keep all these rules and make sure we're getting it right day in and day out, we have an intimacy with God our Father that leads to rest and it leads to freedom because there's forgiveness there. And because of this forgiveness, we have been dearly bought. We have been made sons and daughters by the cross and resurrection. So if you are a believer in God by faith in Christ, you are God's child. And so our response is not more works for work's sake, but more dependency on God, who empowers us for love and good works. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, 
For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So Paul's continuing to admonish this church. When Paul came to them, he had some kind of ailment. We don't know what it is. There's really no reason to speculate what it was. However, it was apparently not great. Um, Paul, the way he talks about it, it's kind of repulsive even, like the kind of ailment only a mother could deal with. Um, But the Galatians received Paul. And in God's sovereignty, Paul, because of this ailment, created an opportunity for him. Uh, God created an opportunity for Paul to share the gospel with these Galatians, and they received Christ. And yet, now because of these Judaizers, they are disregarding Paul altogether. And Paul loves them enough. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul loves them enough to tell them the truth. And next, Paul's going to show humility and care for this church, and it's juxtaposed against the pride and the haughtiness of these Judaizers. Look at verse 17. He says, they, that's the Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The Judaizers are trying to win an argument. They're not concerned at all about the souls of the Galatians. They only care about their own egos. And then we have Paul speaking with the tender concern of a mother who says he's laboring like a mother giving birth until Christ is formed in this church. That is, in fact, the goal of Christianity. It isn't that we get everything we could ever want. It isn't that we don't struggle and don't suffer. Heaven even isn't the primary goal. It's a nice reward, But the goal is Christ is formed in us, meaning that we are more like Christ. That's the goal of Christianity, to become more like Jesus. Heaven is only desirable because Jesus is there too. The goal is that we are more like Jesus, moment by moment by moment. And by becoming more Christ-like and following the example of Christ, We are to be wholly dependent upon God the Father for all of life. We are people committed to the Word of God and dependent on the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us to repentance and to lead us to more love and devotion for God and more love and devotion for the church and more love and devotion for the unbelievers around us. The goal is not that we become more religious or the most religious. The goal is that we have a deep relationship with God. The goal is serving others in a way that 
honors the Lord. The goal is serving because it's an honor and a privilege to do so. We serve like Christ who has served us. We're not secretly trying to exalt ourselves. The goal is that we are like Christ and He is exalted. Our prayer ought not to be, God, spare me from hard, but make me more like you. God, make me more like you. Develop in me, God, more of yourself. Jesus, make me more like you. Is that your prayer? Do you pray that? Jesus, make me more like you. Are you concerned with being Christ-like in your life? If you would claim to be a Christian, does your life look like Jesus' life? Are you working out of a response to the grace you have received? Or are you working your way to God? Trying to earn His love. Trying to earn His acceptance. Trying to earn your salvation. All right, so let me summarize the book of Galatians up to this point in like a tweet form. Um, The first two chapters are Paul's autobiography, and he's defending his apostleship and defending the gospel message. Chapters 3 and 4 are the theological section. And Paul ends this chapter, chapter 4, and ends this section by using the Judaizers' argument against them. So let's look here at what he says next. There's a lot of Old Testament history here, so we're going to go all the way back to Genesis. But first we're going to read verse 21. (laughs) Verse 21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul is saying that those of you who want to be bound to the Old Testament law, bound to the Old Testament regulations, you can't even keep the law. The law leads to death. Just like paganism that you've been accusing the Gentiles of practicing, you are guilty of the same thing. Paul is saying here the irony is that those of you who say you have to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved... Don't keep the law. So if you consider the greatest commandment in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You can't keep that on your own. There's not one second of your life you have been able to keep it. We all fail to keep it. Paul is saying you don't follow the law fully and completely, and therefore you are condemned by the law. And so here's how Paul unpacks this line of thinking. Uh, Verse 22 and 23, Galatians 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the slave of the son was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. All right, so as you know, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. Uh, According to the song... Many, many sons. But biologically speaking, Abraham had two sons. You can go back and read this, Genesis 16, Genesis 17, and Genesis 21. We mentioned two uh, women, a free woman and a slave woman. Why is it relevant for Paul to use the example of Sarah and Hagar here? Like what relevance do these 
two women from Genesis have to do with the situation happening in Galatia with these Judaizers? Well, these two women speak directly to the situation in Galatia. Abraham had a wife. Her name was Sarah, and she was free. Sarah had a slave woman named Hagar. God comes and makes a promise to Abraham when he was an old man and when his wife was an old woman. He says, you will be the father of many nations and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and one of your descendants will rule the world for all eternity. The problem is this. Abraham's old and his wife is old and they have no children. And after a period of waiting on God's promise to be fulfilled, Sarah gets impatient. And she tells Abraham, here's my slave. Have a child with her. Surely this is what God meant. Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. And in a moment of weakness, they don't rely on the promises of God to them. So Hagar conceives by Abraham and has a son, and they name him Ishmael. They take matters into their own hands. When we do this, we are like our first parents, Adam and Eve, thinking, I can do this on my own. I don't need God. I'm tired of waiting on God. I can be my own God. We believe the first lie, and that leads to death. Later on in the story, however, Sarah does conceive miraculously at 90 years old. And she has a son, and his name is Isaac. Ishmael, though he's a son of Abraham, is also the son of a slave woman. And therefore, he is a slave. Isaac is born to the free woman. So Isaac is free. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So an allegory is a story that the characters represent deeper spiritual truths. Uh, one of the most famous allegories in Christian literature is uh, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Devante would go, hey. Um, the main character in this story is named Christian. And there are other characters named Evangelist and Hypocrisy and other things like that. And there are places known as the City of Destruction and Difficulty Hill and the Celestial City. So John Bunyan writes and gives names to people and places that symbolize deeper spiritual truths. The difference here is that Bunyan's work is clearly a fictional allegory. And the story that Paul is telling us that can be interpreted allegorically is based on historical people in a real time, in a real place. These two women, he says, represent two covenants. The old covenant based on works, based on rule following, based on law keeping. The old covenant shows us how bad we really are and how much we need a savior. 
And then we have the new covenant anchored in Jesus based on grace, based on forgiveness. The new covenant shows us how good God is. And because of how bad we are, we still can be loved and forgiven because of what Jesus did for us on the cross by becoming sin and death in our place. Hagar represents the law. Hagar represents the flesh. Hagar represents the old covenant. Her children were born out of the fleshly desires, and all of her children are born of flesh. Mount Sinai is where the law was given through Moses, and Hagar represents physical, uh, political Jerusalem. All who are holding on to the law, meaning the Jews, all who are holding on to the law are enslaved to the law. Now Sarah, on the other hand, represents New Jerusalem. Verse 26 calls it Jerusalem above. It says, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul is telling his readers that there is a new Jerusalem coming. When God in Christ returns and restores all things, physical Jerusalem will be replaced by spiritual Jerusalem, made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue on the face of the earth. These are the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, the child of promise. Ishmael was born of the slave woman through the fleshly desires of Abraham and Sarah. Isaac's birth, on the other hand, was from the supernatural intervention of the Lord, like a future supernatural birth. I mean, Sarah's postmenopausal in 90, and yet she conceives miraculously, pointing towards another future miraculously conceived child of promise. Ishmael corresponds to slavery, and Isaac is freedom. Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah who was prophesying during the captivity of the nation of Israel. And he is saying that the children of promise will not be in captivity to slavery forever. They will be redeemed. Verse 28, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to... He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Philman says it like this. Paul is drawing an analogy. These churches in Galatia are like Isaac. They're children of promise. And these Judaizers are like Ishmael, the child produced from faithlessness. Ishmael persecuted Isaac, like these Judaizers are persecuting these Galatians. The free woman, which is Sarah, and the Gentile church, the Gentile Christians, um, they have no part with the slave woman, Hagar and the Judaizers. So here's where we'll end today. Paul is saying there are two types of people. You're either Isaac or you're Ishmael. 
And the analogy between the two is a story of us all. You can be a child of flesh or a child of promise. If you reduce Christianity to you shall and you shall not, you've missed the whole point of the gospel. You are a slave like Ishmael. Consider this, it is God himself who gives us the motivation to obey him in the first place. It is God who helps us put sin to death in our own lives. God has made a covenant with his people. God has made a binding promise with his people. The old covenant required you to keep the rules and the regulations. And what the old covenant showed us is who we really are. People in need of saving. Because we can't be good enough. We can't be perfect enough. Even on our best days, we cannot do it on our own. We need a savior. The law shows us that we're in bondage. Galatians 3.23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. There is, however, something better. Christ Jesus came. Christ came and instituted the new covenant of grace through himself. God gave us the law to show us our need for him. And Christ came to offer himself as our substitute, to die in our place in order that we can be made right with him by the blood of Jesus on the cross. The Old Testament required you to sacrifice lambs to pay for the penalty of your sins. The New Covenant abolishes the need to sacrifice animals to atone for our sins because Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. Jesus came and paid the price we could never pay on our own because he kept the law fully. And he died and was buried. And then Jesus rose from the grave, sealing the promise of the new covenant. And all whose faith is in Christ for the forgiveness of sins are sons and daughters of God. And we will inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We will dwell with God our Father and Savior and Lord for all eternity. Forgiveness and grace and mercy have been purchased by the blood of Jesus to you. You have been bought. According to the promise of God to deliver a people unto himself, you have been bought. If you're like Ishmael, on the other hand, You are a spiritually illegitimate child of the flesh. God promised Abraham an heir. An heir according to promise. And that promise was rescue and redemption through himself. And God has kept his promise. So by trying to place ourselves under the law, by trying to earn God's favor by morality... We are showing that we are still slaves and have no part in the inheritance promised to us through God himself. Abraham casts off his slave woman with her son of the flesh. And this seems harsh, right? It's kind of the uglier parts of the Old Testament. But Isaac is the son of promise, not Ishmael. Ishmael and Hagar represent unbelief and sin, and therefore Ishmael and his descendants cannot inherit with Isaac and the heirs of promise. 
Abraham's lack of trust in God has led to these consequences that had to be dealt with. And this is how God dealt with it. Cast off the slave woman. God is holy. And the amazing thing isn't that God is allowing this to take place in the life of Hagar and Ishmael. The amazing thing is that when you consider how sinful we are, the fact that God saves anybody is what's truly amazing. Paul tells us, allegorically speaking, to cast off the slave woman, meaning that if salvation is by grace through faith, then we are to have no part in works-based religious righteousness. We are to have no part in sin. Grace is opposed to earning. The only work we can do then is to receive the good gift of faith in Christ. That's all that's required of us to receive his forgiveness. Freedom in Christ, according to Philip Ryken, can only be preserved by abolishing bondage to the law. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We have been offered grace and mercy through repentance of our sins by the kindness of God to us. Salvation comes through Christ. Paul has made this abundantly clear. Now his pastoral concern for this church and for us is that we live in accordance with this wonderful truth. We have been bought with a high price, and now we have been set free to operate out of the grace that we have received. Do you live like this? When you fail and when you sin, what is your response? Do you run to the cross of Christ for your forgiveness, or do you try to do better, try to clean yourself up in order to make God love you more? Like when you sin against your spouse, do you run to Christ for forgiveness, or do you sit and condemn yourself? When you're short with your children, do you seek the Lord's help and forgiveness, or do you tell yourself how awful of a parent you are? When you sin, in whatever way you sin, do you lean on the loving embrace of God's love and forgiveness? Or do you condemn yourself? Do you function like God expects you to clean yourself up before you can approach Him? That is not the gospel. The gospel tells us we can't do enough because we're sinners. But the gospel also tells us that because of what Jesus did for us, we can be forgiven. We can be loved. We can be accepted by faith and repentance. Working to earn leads to our death. Christ has redeemed us from this. The only response is confession and worship by faith in our great God. Confess your sins. God is desiring to forgive you. Children of God, you are not slaves to religion. You are bought with the righteousness of Christ. Rest in that. There is so much freedom in being forgiven by Jesus. We are beloved children of God. Why do we insist on beating ourselves up so much? Grace to you. 
Christ delights in you, Christian. Maybe for the first time you need to consider that, that Christ delights in you. Consider that you've been dearly bought by the blood of Jesus and can't do enough to earn his love. Christ has done the work for you. All that was required of you is to receive his forgiveness by faith. So what's your motivation? Are you motivated by the love of Christ? Or are you motivated by a desire to save yourself? Consider that this morning as we respond. Let's pray.